In the days before the great flood, the Lord God had sent down to earth some 200 entities from his angelic entourage. Watchers, they were called, appropriately named for their divine purpose, set upon by the Lord God himself. And God said to these angels, Go down to earth, oversee my mortal children, watch them and guide them from a distance, but never interfere with their affairs. And the Lord God entrusted these 200 angels to Semyaza, the most senior of the watchers, who would manage the angelic host on earth and ensure that God's intentions were fulfilled and that his rules were not broken. It was not long before Semyaza's resolve was diminished, as was his fear of God, and in its place came the same overwhelming hunger for the mortal women. Altogether, against better judgment, they descended upon the mortal women and took them for wives, impregnated them with their seed, and shared with them the secrets of heaven. And it was Azazel, a high-ranking watcher, who went a step further and taught the men of mankind how to fight, taught them how to make weapons, and taught them to wage war on each other. Magic was disseminated from the lips of the watchers, as was the forbidden knowledge of the heavens and the untold wisdom of the angels. With such an intervention, the world turned to chaos. Wars were waged, rapes were committed, and the appetite of the watchers overthrew the societal balance that mankind had so carefully cultivated. But this was only the beginning. From the wombs of the women taken by the watchers burst forth violent, hideous, giant beings, those that were ravenous and insatiable. They were bulbous creatures with mismatched eyes and angry snarls. Their bodies were heavyset, muscular, some with arms as big as logs and legs as firm as trunks. They were cold to hold, yet none could deny the fire inside, hateful, chaotic, evil. Quickly did they grow with appetites that knew no bounds. They ate the harvest first, then the grass, then the trees, then the forest itself, picking the landscape clean as they fed and fed and fed. And when the landscape was done, they turned to the birds, the cattle, the fish, and even the wild beasts, emptying the land of life so that they might fill their bellies instead. And when the animals were all but vanquished, they turned to mankind itself, snatching them up like snacks on a platter and devouring them without a second thought. And when the giants ran out of humans for which to terrorize and feast on, they turned on each other, cannibalizing one another. In a matter of weeks, the humans were scattered, their homes destroyed and their lives ruined. The giants had quickly established dominance upon the earth, but with nothing left to consume and nothing left to lay waste to, some began to develop what could only be described as a conscience. They formed packs of reasonably calm companionship, not unlike the camps formed by the mortal men, long before civilization, tribes if you will, a band of allies knit together in the face of earthly desolation. It was in one particular group that the giants began to exhibit some rather human tendencies, where each member began to experience a strange array of emotions, doubt, guilt, regret, fear, feelings that were otherwise alien to such violent monsters, and feelings that they could not possibly understand. They became troubled by visions, plagued by images in their sleep, and haunted by the prospect that something wasn't quite right. For one giant, known simply as Mawe, these dreams and visions were particularly intense. Brothers, he declared one night by the campfire, we've all been troubled by the things we've seen behind our own eyes, but I fear I've seen something that warrants our concern. What is it? they asked, sharing his concern. I saw myself with a stone tablet that I had immersed in water, but when I retrieved it, four names were etched into its surface. What names? they asked, gripped by his story. I did not recognize them, Mawe sighed, 
as he listed off their names. Noah, Shem, Japheth, Ham. The giants looked to each other, hoping at least one amongst them had the answers. But like Marwe, they too could not recall such names. Do you think it is a bad omen for us? They asked, sheepishly for once, a sight that none of them were used to seeing in each other. Marwe lowered his head. I think it's so. Another giant made himself known as he stood before the fire, and with his rise, the others seemed to shy away. For he was named Oya, and along with his brother Haya, they were the sons of the Watcher Samyaza, the angel who had led their fathers down to earth. Who told you how to interpret this dream? Oya shot at Marwe. There was an uncomfortable pause before Marwe stood up. It was my father, Barakel. Oya snarled at that, his twin brother lurking behind him, just as bitter. At least Barakel had the decency to check up on his offspring. Many of the other angels, including Oya and Haya's father, had fled the moment they sprang forth from their mothers. All nonsense, Oya barked at them, his brother Haya echoing his sentiment. You dream of tablets with names appearing and disappearing? I dreamt of a virgin woman who gave birth to a son. Such wonders we have all seen in our dreams, yet in the end, it means nothing. Nothing. Haya sidled up beside his brother, as if it needed saying twice. But we have seen our own destruction, some of the giants wailed. We have seen ourselves perish. We have seen ourselves overcome. And we have seen ourselves judged into oblivion. Don't you see? Oya shot them all a glance. The sort of glance that commanded their attention. These visions aren't for us. They're for Azazel, the watcher who taught the men how to fight who gave them weapons and incited war amongst them. All of these judgments are for him, not us. Why would we suffer when we did not even ask to be born? No, these sentences that you envision are for our fathers, not for us. For our fathers. Haya seconded with a thump as his fist landed in his palm. I remain uncertain, Marwe admitted. Though he wished to believe in Oya's words. It almost seemed too good to be true. Could they really be exempt from the consequences of what they had all contributed to? Was it really their fathers who would pay the price for their actions? And if it was, why did that feel so wrong? Here, Oya pointed at one of the giants, one who sat furthest from the fire. One side of him cast orange by the flames, and the other side sheathed in the darkness. Ask Gilgamesh what he thinks and Gilgamesh sat there, working his mouth, almost like there was something stuck in there that he didn't quite like the taste of. You all know of my strength, he started, dark eyes fixed on the fire, like it always was. You've seen me vanquish even the strongest of the mortals with no more than a punch. But the ones in the heavens, they are not so easy to slay. The one who presides over the heavenly realm and all the realms is God. And him, I cannot slay. Oya rolled his eyes. No one asked you to fight him. Just tell Marwe what you think of the visions we've been having. Gilgamesh looked up at Oya then, eyes poised and lip curling with menace. For a moment, Marwe thought there would be a brawl and they'd have to spend the rest of the evening separating these two. But instead, Gilgamesh turned to look up at him and the grave look in his face turned to one of somber defeat. The time of the ravenous wild beast has come to an end, he said, with a low rumbling in his throat, as the time of the wild man that I am known. So you think we're going to die as well now, do you? Oyo shook his head, scoffing to himself. Listen to how foolish you all sound. Here, I'll tell you another dream I had to make it clear that these dreams are not to be taken seriously. I had a dream that a tree was uprooted, except for three of its roots. Beings came down from heaven and took all the other roots up to the skies, but these three roots were left behind. What do you make of this? Are we the three roots? One of the giants asked, trembling. Are we going to get left behind? Another asked, just as uncertain. No! Oya made a fist and held it up to all of them. If anything, the roots are the mortal men. 
the temporal rulers of this realm who have wronged the earth and each other long before we even arrived. Remember, they are the ones who fell for Azazel's deceptions, not us. Not us, came higher again, asserting his brother's words and towering over the others, as if it was at all necessary. Still, the other giant seemed mollified by Oya's words, some letting out sighs of relief, others lowering their shoulders and easing back into their seats as if the matter was settled. Some were laughing to themselves now, poking fun at each other for worrying, even though they all shared the same anxiety just moments ago. For Marwe though, he remained on the edge of his seat, fighting back the trembling of his lip as he pondered on the visions. Through the flames of the fire, he caught the grave look of the giant Gilgamesh and couldn't help but feel utterly helpless. That same night, the giants had more dreams and visions that reignited their anxiety. Some awoke with a start, drenched in a coat of sweat. Others woke screaming, striking at the air as they struggled up to their feet. Discord gripped the camp that night, and just like previous nights, many of the giants remained awake too afraid to return to slumber unless their dreams found them. Again, Oya flapped his hands around as irritated as could be, though Marwe sensed he too had seen something in his sleep. We went through this already, did we not? These things you are seeing are not meant for us. Not meant for us, Haya meandered behind him, rubbing the sleep from his eyes. But, but, but the garden, one of the giants was blubbering. The, the garden... It was real. Garden, Oya snapped. What are you speaking of? The garden, another giant said, tears strolling from his eyes as he stared about in shock. The garden. Marwe had seen it too, of course. A luscious garden more beautiful than the ones mankind had tended to stretched out as far as the eye could see. There in this green paradise were 200 trees that stood uniformly, tended to by angels had watered them. But as peaceful as this image was, it changed for the worse in the mere blink of an eye. Soon the garden was on fire, the trees were consumed in an inferno, and all that was left of the green space was a red monstrosity. Those trees are obviously our fathers, Oya was saying. Don't you see? There were 200 of them, just like there were 200 watchers. So you dreamt it too, Marwe couldn't help himself. Oya gritted his teeth, didn't much like being in the wrong, liked it even less when it was in front of everyone else. What is it I have to say to you that will make you realize that these dreams aren't for us? Oya said out loud for everyone, but his gaze was reserved for Marwe. What is it I have to do before you all realize that I speak the truth? There was silence for a moment, the sort of silence that was always a prelude to something much bigger. The sort of silence that promised an outburst from Oya. The sort of silence that had Marwe clenching everything he had. But then it was diffused by the squeak of a giant somewhere amongst them. We should ask Enoch. Oya's head turned on him so fast that Marwe was sure he heard something click in his neck. You value the word of this scribe over me, Oya started. It wasn't exactly a question, but more of a way to get the speaker to take back what he had said before things got ugly. He is wise, came another voice, much to Oya's surprise, whose shoulders now lost a bit of their height as others began to talk. Enoch will know what to say, said someone else. He can understand the things that haunt us, came another. We should seek out Enoch immediately. Soon, a chorus of Enoch's name broke out amongst the giants, hushed at first, but then louder, until the whole pack were alive with conversation where they otherwise might have been sleeping. Enough! Oya bellowed over them, driving them back into instant silence. Enough! Haya followed lamely behind and gave a self-assured nod, as if congratulating himself for the effort. Oya started pacing around the campfire in that way only he could, stamping his big feet into the dirt as deliberately as he could, as if these were words that needed hearing. Sometimes, Marwe thought he did it just to make sure everyone was listening. So you want this mortal Enoch to interpret these dreams, do you? He swaggered about, swinging his head like an axe, this way and that. 
You trust his word over mine, do you? Will his words settle your stomachs more than mine will, will it? There was no reply, just the awkward unsettled faces of a dozen giants who weren't sure whether to say yes and get what they wanted or no to keep Oya from getting mad. But Marwe knew something had to be done, lest they be plagued by visions for the rest of their days. If it truly was a bad omen for them, he wanted to know so as to face it head on, not cower from the potentiality of it. As far as he knew, Enoch was a wise man, one who convened with the almighty god himself, who created the world and the mortals, who created their mothers and their fathers, who created everything, arguably even them. I will find Enoch, Marwe stood up and found Oya's gaze on him sooner than he would have liked. You? Oya spat, caught spit between his teeth and had to wipe it from his bulbous lips. Why? Marwe shrugged, trying to make it look like he wasn't fussed either way. Someone has to put an end to this madness, and if Enoch can determine the visions we see, then at least we'll know for sure. Oya scowled at him, looked around at the others for support and realized it wasn't coming. He deflated a slight. Even Haya had taken a step back, feigning interest in the dirt under his fingernails. Fine, Oya mumbled and turned away. Go see your precious Enoch. And so Marwe took to the skies like a bird. He soared through the air until he came across Enoch in the land of desolation, a great barren desert that boasted no life except for the scribe. When Enoch saw him approaching, he held the giant down, for there was nothing that Enoch had seen by now that could surprise him. Scribe, Marway knelt before him, uncertain as to why he was kneeling before a man of all things, uncertain as to why he was kneeling at all. I have need of you. Please, listen. And so Marway spoke of the dreams they had, the stone tablet in the water, the roots of the trees, the garden on fire. Marwe told him of everything they had seen and how they wished to learn what these dreams meant, if anything. And Enoch, despite his reservations of the giants, listened to everything Marwe had to say. But there was nothing he could say in regards to the dreams. These dreams were given to you by the Lord God, he told Marwe. Therefore, it would not only be wrong, but also impossible for me to interpret without his guidance. Marwe was deflated. So there's nothing you can do? Enoch pondered on the giant for a moment, for despite the destruction he had seen at their hands, this one at least seemed polite enough. I will speak to the Lord God on your behalf and learn of what your visions mean and what he has prepared for you. Go back now to where you have come and I will send word to you once I have answers for you. Marway lowered his head in gratitude and made to return to the skies, but just as he did, Enoch grabbed him by one of his fingers. Wait, he beckoned. If you mean to fly, giant, beware of the sun. If you fly too close, you will be scorched and obliterated. Marwe nodded slowly before turning to look at the sun, bright and furious. He supposed it should have been obvious that flying anywhere near that ball of fury was asking for trouble. Still, he was grateful for Enoch's advice and decided that despite his humanity, Perhaps he could be, at least, half-trusted. So when he left Enoch, he had no doubt that he would hear from him again. Oya was less convinced. So he just sent you packing? Oya sneered when Marway returned. Empty-handed, no less. He did give me some advice about the sun, Marway shrugged. Oya frowned. The sun? Yes, the sun, he said, and walked his way over to the fire. Oya followed him. Well, what did he say? Marway shrugged again. Not to go near it. Oya bunched up his fists and shook. Idiots! I'm surrounded by idiots! Days went by, and it seemed as if Marway's trust was misplaced. Enoch had not reached out, but with the continuation of dreams and visions, it seemed even less likely that the scribe was going to remain true to his word. But eventually... Enoch did show himself amongst the giants, but he brought with him some less well-received news. Though I did petition to God to let me know of your fate, Enoch started. The Lord God refused me. However, he did give me this tablet, which I used to deliver to your fathers, the Watchers. 
Herein, it is detailed that Samyaza, Azazel, and all his companions will not escape judgment for all the things they have done, and that their wives who succumb to your father's whims, your mother's that is, will not escape judgment, and that their sons, that is you, will not escape judgment. The land is crying and complaining about the terrors you have committed, but soon the archangels will arrive to destroy you, and those who are left will face the great flood, which will destroy all living things. But pray now, giants, and pray truly for forgiveness, and perhaps in such a gesture, you might yet be saved. Preposterous! Oya stormed forward towards Enoch. You think you can come here and speak of our fathers that way? Speak of us that way? Who do you think you are, little man? Little man, Haya mouthed off behind his brother, storming on after him. To his credit, Enoch did not scream at the approach of two hulking giants, didn't jump, didn't even flinch as far as Marway could see. If anything, he looked amused, like a man who knew the end of a joke, but was willing to hear it told in full anyway. Marway stood in his way, put his back to the scribe, and faced Oya and Haya head on. After all, he'd brought Enoch here, had he not? It was his duty to protect him now. At least, that's what felt right. You dare shield this worm from me? Oya blasted him, big eyes only getting bigger. Killing him will achieve nothing. Have you not heard what he said? If we repent for what we have done, there might be a chance of salvation. Marwe tried pleading, but knew deep in his heart there was no reaching Oya. He'd already made up his mind, much as he always had. I will not stand here and be lectured by a human. If what he says is true, and we are sworn by angels from the heaven above, then let them come. I'll fight them. I'll fight all of them. Who's with me? If Oya was expecting a response, it sure wasn't the one he wanted. Aside from a few nervous mutters of agreement, it seemed none of the giants were prepared to fight the angels, or whatever else this almighty deity in the heavens had planned for them. Oya looked around the camp now, searching for an ally, anyone who wasn't his brother, who had himself taken a stride back. Well, he called again, but was now only met with a resounding silence. Forgiveness it is, Marwe said as he sank to his knees and held his hands up in prayer. Forgiveness it is. Forgiveness, Oya growled as other giants began kneeling, casting glances at each other to see if they had the stance right, to see if they were meant to clasp their right thumb over their left, or vice versa. Some were already muttering to themselves, eyes closed, whispering apologies for the atrocities they had committed. You really think this god is capable of forgiving you for what you've done? We'll try, Marwe said. I believe the scribe. It is better we surrender now and face a lighter punishment than continue on this path and risk total obliteration. You will all die just the same. Oya snatched up a club that he'd used as a weapon and his brother did the same. For a moment, Marwe was about to go grab a club of his own, thought he might have needed it going by the look of venom in Oya's face. But then he turned on his heel, his brother just a step behind, and stalked off as angrily as he could. It was the last time Marwe would ever see him again. In the days that followed, what Enoch had predicted came to pass. The archangels descended upon the earth, and what was once hostaged by the giants was wrested from their grip. One by one, they were quartered and cut down like the harvest meeting the sickle. They were shown no mercy, as the one named Gabriel cast magic upon them, turning them against each other and driving them mad. Those that fought back were crushed by his strength. One giant was sent flying for acres when he was whacked by the entity's trumpet. It was those who remained on their knees praying that Marwe felt the most sorry for, those who were still muttering prayers and forgiveness, those who had truly believed that if they prayed hard enough, they might escape the consequences of their actions. It was when Marwe saw the Archangel Gabriel butcher them, did he realize that Oya was right. They would all die just the same. The flood came as was told, and no life save for an ark was safe from oblivion. It was loaded with animals as far as Oya could see, 
and there at the forefront was a man, an ordinary man, kind of looked similar to that old scribe who'd come to the camp a few days earlier. Oya stood at the precipice of a cliff, staring down at the site below, the churning of the waters, the storm in the skies, the fires that raged throughout the land, and the big plume of black smoke that rose from where they'd once camped together. He wondered if Marway was still alive, the stupid, idealistic fool, wondered if any of their prayers had saved them, and if it was too late to start trying. But no, he was sure he knew this god well enough. If there was going to be forgiveness, it would not come in the form of archangels and their weapons, nor would it come in the form of floods and storms. What if we stay up here? Haya was saying beside him. They had climbed pretty high to avoid the flood, but the rain wasn't letting up and the water levels were only rising higher and higher. Soon, there would be no land left to stand on. We can't, Oya said and took to gently patting his club. It was only then he saw something in the water. Too big to be a whale, too big to be another giant, even Gilgamesh. Too big to be, well, anything. It had black scaly skin that thundered through the foamy waves and every so often, it pulsated with a purple glow. What is that? Hoyer asked, fumbling for his own weapon. One of God's creatures, Oya presumed as he lifted his club. A silhouette emerged in the water, long and twisting, like a bloated snake that was only staying afloat because of what it had consumed. The water around it began to bubble, the purple pulsating grew more intense, and even from where they stood, both giant brothers felt the rumble of the creature. What kind of god would make something like that? Hoya began to tremble. Courage, brother, Oya reminded him as he gripped his club a little tighter. There's nothing we cannot... It burst from the water. Monster was the only word for it. Purple eyes blinking in a rage, like an animal that had been disturbed from its nap. Its mouth was huge, flaps of scaly flesh vibrating around its teeth from where it roared. Its tail slapped about the water, splashing indiscriminately, crushing a sea stack under its tremendous girth. What is that? Haya breathed in deep. It took a moment for Oya to find his tongue as the creature rushed up to meet them, its neck stretching with effort and its teeth snatching up the air between them. I've heard legends of such a beast. They call it... Oya felt his mouth go numb wasn't even sure if his brother heard him as the beast lunged at them. Leviathan! Oya barely avoided the beast. He threw himself out of the way, landed hard on his side and nearly lost his club as it rolled over the edge of the precipice. He scrambled on instinct, caught it clumsily between his fingers and stared up at the beast. It hung in the air, unreasonably tall, its head big enough to block out the sun if it wanted. It was impossible to know how much of its body still remained in the water, but that wasn't of much concern to Oya. More than enough of it was here now, glaring down at him with an expression that only a predator could show its prey. Funny how the scribe had not mentioned such a creature showing up. Hiya, Oya called, fearing his brother had fallen off the edge, but no, that was not the case. Hiya was there, in the beast's mouth, crunched between its teeth. There was no feeling after that, as far as Oya could tell. Maybe it was seeing his brother's corpse hanging there between the monsters more that drove him forward. Maybe it was the realization that now he was entirely alone, the last giant. In any case, there he went, soaring through the air, club raised high as he brought it down between the creature's eyes. Once, twice, three times. The creature shook violently, its screams deafening and leaving Oya with nothing but a high-pitched ringing in his ears. But still he struck with his club, four, five, six times, until the club turned bloody, until skin was ripped out of the beast's scaly head, until the club slipped out of his hand and went off down to the waters below. Then he was stomping the beast, his foot no bigger than a normal man's foot might have been on a boat. He dug his heel in deep, screaming along with the beast, driving his entire weight into each bloody stomp, seven, eight, nine times, until the creature began to sway. 
Then he struck at it, fists buried into its skull, retrieving bone, ripping out whatever fleshy insides he could grab and unceremoniously tossing it over his shoulder. He got to its eyes, punched one so hard it burst into a gooey white and red shower. Then he got the other one, drove his fist in and wrenched it out, tunneled his way into the hollow space and started hacking and hacking and hacking until the beast began to form. He was thrown from the beast, tossed like a child's toy, thrown through the air before being collected by the cliffside. He lay there for a moment, catching his breath, trying to unclench his fists, one leg still kicking as if it hadn't realized the fight was over. He was crying, he was screaming, he was sucking in air and vomiting all at the same time. It must have been all of five minutes before he managed to get to his feet, managed to get a glimpse down at the water below and saw the beast twitching before the rising waters took it. And Oya was laughing and he was crying and he was halfway between standing upright when he heard the beating of wings behind him. He didn't get to turn around when the blade was put through him. One concise stab that saw a brutal bit of metal poking out the front of him. He thought about swinging around and aiming a punch at the angel, but his arms didn't respond. His body went still and cold, so unnaturally cold as his sights began to dim. The last thing he heard was the smacking of the angel's lips as it took one long blast from a trumpet. And the flood did rise to the heights of the sky and all life was destroyed, including all giants who were neutralized by the angels or swept asunder by the tide. It was only Noah and his sons, whose names Marwe had once seen on a stone tablet who survived, the very same men who were aboard the legendary ark that catered to all the animals, big and small. And it has since been said that indeed, whilst the giants were destroyed, their souls remained on earth, bitter and vengeful for the fate they had sustained. And like all things bitter and vengeful, they became evil and would continue to torment humanity in the form of spirits. The Book of Giants is most commonly known for its discovery amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, this being what is sometimes dubbed as the Aramaic version, or simply the Dead Sea Scrolls version, written sometime around the year 300 before the Common Era. Additionally, a version of the Book of Giants believed to be penned by Parthian prophet Mani also exists, Mani being the founder of the Gnostic Manichaeism in around the year 250 AD. Both the Aramaic version and the Manichaean version of the Book of Giants are unfortunately fragmentary, to the point that we are still missing much of what the text actually says, as well as a definitive ending. The Dead Sea Scrolls version, for example, appears to end with Enoch delivering an ambiguous warning to the giants that they will have to answer for the evils they have committed. The ending is abrupt, and unfortunately, we do not learn of the fates of Marwe, Oya, or Haya, though I suppose it is heavily implied that they went the same way as their fathers in the Book of Enoch. Enoch actually specifies in the tablet he gives the giants in the Aramaic text that the land is crying out because of what they, the sons of the Watchers, have done to it, and that the sons of the Watchers will receive judgment. But in the Manichaean version, we are treated to a more definitive end, or at least a continuation for some of the giants. We don't get to learn of the fate of Marwe because of how fragmented the text is, but we do learn, according to Mani, that Oya and Haya, the sons of the principal Watcher Sumyaza, end up fighting Leviathan and the Archangel Raphael before vanishing. Due to the fragmented nature of the text, we do not know any details of the battle, nor do we know if Leviathan simply devoured the giants, or if Raphael stepped in to deliver the killing blow, or if like my version, there is a trading of blows. In my efforts to retell a more comprehensive story, I attempted to merge the Aramaic version found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Manichaean version, as well as incorporating the Book of Watchers found in the Book of Enoch, that sees the angels descend upon the mortal women and beget these giants in the first place. It is true that I did take some creative liberties, such as assuming the giants' personalities, which is unlikely to have been told to us in the original text, or dramatizing the battle at the end, 
which I hoped allowed for some sympathy in favour of the giants, who could be commended for their decision to pray for forgiveness in the case of Marwe, or commended for their decision to fight in the face of abysmal odds in the case of Oya. I decidedly chose to make Enoch seem almost indifferent too, considering that he probably would have seen so much more incredible and threatening things on his cosmic journey through the realms in his own book. We know Enoch is one of those characters in the Bible who elicits some kind of mystery. After all, the Bible tells us that he lived 365 years, and perhaps more intriguingly, God took him away, as we are told in Genesis 5.24, which some believe is a nod to God not taking Enoch's mortal life, but instead taking him up to heaven as he was. We know Enoch was the great-great-grandfather of Noah, which would make Marwe seeing Noah's name on the tablet even more eerie, if not totally sensible, for only a descendant of one such as Enoch would be worthy enough to survive the flood. The bottom line is, the Bible doesn't sell Enoch enough, considering that these little tidbits in early Genesis is all we ever really get of him. In order to really understand Enoch, one must look at the pseudepigraphical texts such as the Book of Enoch, and perhaps when one does, it might be better understood why there was such a fascination with him at the time. As far as the Book of Enoch goes, we know that the Watchers are punished for their crimes against humanity, and their betrayal of God. But because of how fantastical it all seems, Enoch himself is sometimes lost in the shuffle. In the text, Enoch does play some pivotal roles, such as when he reads the Watchers their rights, as dictated by God, and delivers their judgement. In this, he becomes something of an emissary between the fallen angels and God himself. So it's interesting that Enoch takes on the exact same role with the giants, here in the Book of Giants as we are shown that Enoch does try and offer some respite to the giants, at least Marwe in particular, but is ultimately denied by God who does not allow for such mercy. All Enoch can do in the end is read the judgement that had been set upon their fathers, which considering the wording does implicate the giants too. But the giants in the book of Enoch have seldom any redeemable attributes. Nephilim they are called in this story and they are brutish, destructive creatures that are hell-bent on satiating their appetite for food and violence in any way possible. They have no regard for humanity, for they are barely human themselves and are more akin to animals than anything else. They do not speak because they have not been taught to speak, and they do not assemble in packs because there is nothing civil about them. They are, for all intents and purposes, monsters and there is no method to them outside of a sense to feed and kill. The Book of Giants illustrates the giants in a more sympathetic light. They are troubled by dreams, which humanizes them. They experience worry, doubt, and even anxiety over what these dreams mean and what it means for them. They talk to each other about these problems, they share their worries, and they even try reassuring each other that everything will be okay. They are surprisingly like us, despite their previous monstrosities, and if we consider Marwe, they also work at trying to fix the problem, demonstrating problem solving and even redemption. Of course, I chose to exaggerate the need for redemption in my own version, with Marwe kneeling before Enoch, which isn't specified, or with Marwe agreeing that prayer will deliver them. My aim here was to also humanize the giants, to show them as willing to make the change, despite not knowing for sure if it will actually work, arguably a demonstration of faith. Of course, like the original Dead Sea Scrolls version, you can also argue that the only reason the giants bother to pray at all is because they believe it is a means to save themselves. They do not care about God, they do not care about forgiveness, but if praying extends their existence, they are willing to give it a go. But they only go through the motions, they don't actually believe, which is perhaps why God ends up drowning the giants who do pray, because it is not authentic. In the Dead Sea Scrolls version, Marwe is even seen to worry about his food and his living quarters, his bread and his dwelling, more than he is seen to worry about anything else, which shows us that no, he could care less about the destruction he's caused, he only cares about himself. When we think about the fallen angels impregnating the mortal women, we are never really told how their offspring are raised. Some ideas propose that in a rather gory fashion, the giants burst forth from the woman's wombs, 
and that they are there, fully grown and ready to cause a scene. Others propose ideas that the husbands of these women, the mortal men, made an effort to raise them, but were ultimately intimidated by the creatures, or simply resented them for not being of their own seed. Seldom do we see the angels being fathers to the giants, and there is a suggestion that when the angels saw how ugly their giant offspring were, they turned tail and fled. But in the case of Marwe, we learn that he is in communication, at least once, with his angelic father Barakel. It is Barakel who interprets one of the dreams for Marwe, and plants the seed that all is not okay with what they've been doing, and that according to the Dead Sea Scrolls version, also suffered from the same visions. One might say that this was at least some semblance of paternal instinct from the Watchers, for Barakel takes it upon himself to warn his son that the visions are not benign. Now this isn't to say that Barakel should be nominated for Father of the Year award, for just warning Marwe of danger, but he seems to do a slight more than any of the other Watchers for their giant kids. Interestingly, whilst the giants converse about dreams, it's funny that in the Dead Sea Scrolls version, Oya had a dream of a virgin woman who gave birth, and though it is said nonchalantly, and as a means to denounce the significance of the dreams, we as the reader know he dreams of the Virgin Mary, and the baby that would be Jesus. It's a sneaky bit of foreshadowing, but it's quite effective in being ironic too. Oya and Hoya both believe that the dreams are reserved for Azazel, in the original Dead Sea Scrolls version. Azazel being the Watcher in the Book of Enoch responsible for teaching man how to make weapons and how to wage war. Azazel actually comes under considerable scrutiny in the Book of Enoch, and despite not actually being specified as a Watcher who impregnated anyone, though he probably did, he actually ends up taking more blame for the entire incident than the leader Simyaza does. Azazel even earns himself a special kind of hell in the Duodel, an underground imprisonment that he is banished to after being bested by the Archangel Raphael. Some might say that the act of teaching man how to fight with weapons, and the sharing of heaven's secrets, was by far a worse transgression in the eyes of God than the taking of the mortal women. Seeing as Azazel becomes something of a scapegoat for the entire episode in the Book of Enoch, it makes some sense why the giants believed Azazel would be fitting the bill for them too and that these dreams they were having were indeed reserved for him. During these discussions, we are made aware of a particular giant whose name even I was surprised to see here, Gilgamesh. Whether or not it is the same Gilgamesh from the Great Sumerian Epic, or whether it is just simply a namesake is not known, but it is probable that considering the uniqueness of the name, that the writers of the text certainly had some awareness of Near Eastern mythology, and possibly included Gilgamesh who was known as a giant in his own epic so as to supply some validity to the text. Mani, who derived much of his inspiration from ancient Iranian mythology, would have been all but happy to utilize Gilgamesh in the Manichaean version, considering Gilgamesh's roots in ancient Iran and or Mesopotamia. In typical Gilgamesh fashion, he is strong and can pretty much defeat any mortal in a fight. But here, even he shares doubts about fighting the heavens, this is likely done by the original writers to show that if someone as great as Gilgamesh feared the almighty biblical god of the heavens, then the everyday man ought to as well. Of course, if we consider the actual epic of Gilgamesh, and Mesopotamian mythology in general, we'll find that Gilgamesh isn't afraid of anything or anyone, and is probably more than capable of drinking the flood sent down by God and spitting it back out again. In the Dead Sea Scrolls version of the Book of Giants, we also see Gilgamesh as an authority figure, one who convinces Oya that the judgement they are seeing in their dreams is not meant for them, rather it is meant for the mortal men, the rulers of the earth. Considering Oya's father was Samyaza, the leader of the Watchers, it's natural to assume that Oya would be the leader of the giants. Of course, this isn't the case. And considering that it is Gilgamesh's words that placate Oya and the other giant's feelings, one might imply that this was the leader. With all these dreams taking place and haunting the giants, it was only a matter of time before someone came up with a suggestion. The suggestion is unorthodox, however, consulting Enoch. Evidently, the giants knew of Enoch, which suggests that fame of Enoch at the time was quite significant especially in a time when the world was basically in turmoil. 
It also reflects the desperation of the giants that they would turn to Enoch, a human, in the first place. The giants agree to send Marwe to converse with Enoch, though his journey to Enoch is quite a unique one. We are led to believe that this is a cosmic journey through the realms, whereby Marwe must pass by the sun in order to reach the desolate place where Enoch is located. Going by the Book of Enoch, we know Enoch does find himself in some perilous places as he is transported almost interdimensionally by the angels. So to find Enoch in the Book of Giants in a desolate place is not as unusual as it might sound. In any case, I depicted Marwe in my version as simply flying through the sky, an attribute that is applied to the giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls version. It might also make some sense that because their fathers could fly as angels, the giants also maintained some of their ability. We are also treated to a little tidbit of information where Enoch cautions Marwe of his flight, warning him not to fly too close to the sun. It's possible that despite having gained a conscience in this version of the story and having established a certain civility amongst each other, the giants were still ignorant to the ways of the world and thus did not really understand the dangers of the sun and flying too close to it. After Marwe asks Enoch about the dreams, he's not given an answer straight away, but merely a promise that he will commune with God on their behalf in an effort to find an answer. Now Enoch is shown to try and intercede with God in the Dead Sea Scrolls version, but it's not successful. The only thing Enoch is able to offer is virtually the same tablet he received from God in the first place that determined the grim fate of the Watchers. However, there is some hope for salvation suggested through repentance, something I hope to show in my version through Marway's eventual deference. It is through this tablet that the giants also become aware of the flood which God would come to send and understand that it is only through prayer and repentance that they can hope to avoid it. This is essentially where the Dead Sea Scrolls version leaves off, indeed an abrupt ending that doesn't really feel particularly satisfying. The Manichaean version meanwhile, at least from what we have of it, attempts to continue the story. We see Oya and Marwe, as well as the Watcher Sumyaza, have a conversation about weapons, perhaps deliberating whether to use them against the heavenly bodies or to perhaps somehow use them against the Flood. In fact, we also see Oya and Marwe fall out, though we cannot be sure from the fragments as to why this is. In my version, I try to plug this gap by suggesting that Oya saw reason in fighting against God and Marwe found wisdom in acquiescing instead. In any case, it is probable that some giants sided with Oya and some sided with Marwe. The pack was divided. In the Manichaean version, the giants are described as promising to reform and asking for mercy, and Enoch is present to remind them that they will still have to answer for what they have done, whether they have truly repented or not. It is likely though that the giants never truly repented as already specified, and probably only did repent in an effort to save themselves, not because they were actually sorry. When the archangels descended from heaven to exact God's vengeance, as we see in the Book of Enoch, the Manichaean Book of Giants shows the giants putting up fierce resistance. Oya and Haya are shown to do battle against the angels, and whilst not explicitly stated, we do get a sense that the two brothers hold their own and are able to overcome the vengeance of God, at least for a time being. The other giants, presumably those who surrendered to prayer, are not spared from the carnage and it would appear evident that despite their best efforts to reconcile, they are rejected and slaughtered. The Book of Enoch presents this as the doing of Archangel Gabriel, who was specifically tasked with routing the giants, whereby he uses some ethereal power to turn them against each other. From the fragments of the Book of Giants, Gabriel is not directly involved in the slaughter, and we are led to believe that the Archangel Raphael had a more direct involvement when it came to neutralizing the giants. Meanwhile, in the Book of Enoch, we see that Raphael is responsible for taking down Azazel and delivering him in chains to the Duodel, where he is imprisoned for eternity. As with the Book of Enoch, the Book of Giants suggests that those giants who were not destroyed by the Archangels were swept away and drowned in the Flood. The most striking element of the Book of Giants is the emergence of Leviathan. Indeed, this does not occur in the Dead Sea Scrolls version, but is prominent in the Manichaean version. 
Where Manny got this idea from is hard to say, and in some essence, it kind of reads like fan fiction, simply because of how vivid it is. It certainly is characteristic of Enochian imagery, with angels fighting each other, and celestial warfare playing a huge part of the overarching narrative. But one might argue that Manny was trying to establish a definitive and arguably epic ending for the book, a giant payoff that left the reader reeling with delight and wonder. Sadly though, it might be said that Manny's attempt was overambitious, because the conclusion of the story once more leaves much to be desired. We are told that after Haya's death to Leviathan, Oya fights both the sea monster and the Archangel Raphael, but at the apex of the battle, they vanish. The conclusion leads us to believe that God simply took all three up to the heavens, perhaps either deciding the outcome of the battle himself, or getting so impatient that he wanted it over and done with. In my version, I separated Oya's encounter with Leviathan and the Archangel so that the fight seemed more fair, albeit Oya does end up getting stabbed in the back. I also replaced Raphael with Gabriel, which I hoped was obvious by the blowing of the trumpet, as I hoped to make this more in line with Gabriel's task in the Book of Enoch, where he routes the Nephilim on his own. By the end of the tale, we are led to believe that the giants are vanquished, order is restored to the world via the flood, and Noah and his family are left to repopulate and re-establish normality. In my version however, I did pinch more from the Enochian legend, which seems to suggest that whilst the giants, or Nephilim, did expire physically, their spirits lived on in the mortal realm, and turned resentful, evil even. The Book of Enoch does not supply us with specific details of what these spirits do, or what their purpose is now, but it is believed that they are nefarious, and wish to cause trouble for the humans as they had once done in their physical form. At the time when these texts were written, giants were not reserved for the realm of mythology, no. To the Essenes, a mystical Jewish people of ancient times, who were believed to have buried many of their works in the Qumran caves of the Dead Sea, giants were once real, and the stories presented here were believed, in some manner, to have actually transpired. Giants by this account would have played a significant role in the early days of mankind, an obstacle to overcome for sure and another layer of danger that man would need to have navigated. The giants also provide a more pragmatic reason as to why there was a flood in the first place. Indeed, we know this was not some wanton act of destruction by God, but a means to cleanse the sin of man, for he had grown troubled by the acts committed by them. But with the inclusion of the Book of Enoch and the Book of Giants, we get a far more informed sense of why a flood had to be sent at all. Whilst both the Dead Sea Scroll version and the Manichaean version of the Book of Giants differ, both maintain the same sentiment. Both put forth the idea that angels were able to act independently as we are. Both agree that giants were an unholy product of the mingling between angel and woman, and both emphasize the very potent threat that giants once had, in a time long, long ago. As always guys, if you've enjoyed today's episode, then don't forget to give this video a thumbs up, don't forget to subscribe for more content just like this. Until next time.